It's not just giving people safer equipment to keep using drugs. It's also to develop relationships and develop that trust. And eventually, some people choose to get off, not all. Sometimes the success of harm reduction means the quality of life of that person went up and they were connected to community. Or other times it means we probably extended their life 10 years because they were part of this community and they were welcomed in and, and nurtured. That's Trevor Stratton. He's the coordinator for the International Indigenous Working Group on HIV and AIDS at Communities, Alliances and Networks. He's our guest on this episode of Minobamadzwin, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff. Minobamadzwin means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that as a name for this podcast because it captures what we all hope for. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a moment to tell you about our new Thunderbird Wellness app. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness, to live a good life, Minopamadzuan. In an earlier episode, I spoke with Dr. Evan Adams, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Indigenous Services Canada, about the drug use epidemic and need for harm reduction policies to fight it. What we found is that if people are addicted and they want to use and they don't want to stop, they're going to find a way. And so hundreds of people in the country are dying every year from usage. Why don't we help them with their usage so they can use and not die? Today, we want to take a closer look at the importance of harm reduction with an expert in that area, as well as being the International Indigenous Coordinator at Communities, Alliances and Networks. Trevor Stratton is a 56-year-old two-spirit citizen of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation near Toronto. I'd like to share a warning before we start. This conversation could trigger some emotions around suicide. Trevor, welcome to Minobamatsuan. Thanks, Sherry. I'm glad to be on the show. So Trevor, I want to start out asking you about CAN, about the Communities, Alliances and Networks. Tell us more about that organization and, and what it does. Well, CAN has recently expanded their mandate. They used to be called Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network, and we used to have a single mandate, basically working with Indigenous peoples and organizations responding to, to HIV. Then we expanded over the last five, six years. It's been a process of transition and now we're working with sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections, which includes HIV, hepatitis C, and STI, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. Um, but we also threw in t tuberculosis in there, and also, you know, mental health and aging as it relates to these communicable diseases. So we're doing quite a lot. And harm reductions, uh, we've been doing harm reductions since the inception of CAN. So before we get into talking about your work in harm reduction, let's let's get a little bit more about you. We want to hear more about your story. Uh, you're very open about, about your HIV status um, being diagnosed back in 1990. How has that reality affected your approach uh, to an issue like harm reduction? You know, there's lots of people, of course, working and responding to HIV. But when you're living with it, it's, uh, it's different. And we tend to have a lot of passion. We tend to be very pushy, 
you know, and there's we, we bring a sense of urgency to the to the response to to the movement. Um, so I when I go home at night and after 5 p.m., I can't just shut HIV off, you know, so I'm living it. I'm working it at the same time. Um, but, you know, back in the early days when I started to get active, after I started taking the antiretrovirals, I went on disability uh, insurance and I began volunteering on aid service organizations. So I became, I was the, the president of Two-Spirited People of the First Nations. I was the president of the Ontario Aboriginal HIV AIDS Strategy and the treasurer of CAN, which is, you know, Communities, Alliances and Networks now. And all of them were doing harm reduction. I remember the first time I heard from one of my mentors who has passed long passed away, Laverne Monette, executive director of OHAS, um, she, she explained to me that, yes, we're helping people use drugs. And I was like, what? You're helping people to use drugs. How is that okay? And then she talked about, um, well, let's, let's explore this. Let's, you have, do you have a minute? You know, <laughs> let's look at what would happen if we didn't provide clean, sterilized equipment for people who inject drugs. And if, and if we didn't, if we do, and if we didn't, if we don't, Lots of people get HIV, they get infections, and they end up not only dying, but suffering for a long time. And there's a lot of costs, not only financial costs, but costs to our, our families and our, and our communities. And we're losing someone very special in our communities. These are our aunties and our brothers and our moms. These, these aren't monsters, they're just human beings. So living with HIV has really really affected my understanding of harm reduction. It's about starting where people are at. And I'll give an example for myself is when I first went into counseling, when I found out that I was positive living with HIV, I wanted to kill myself. I didn't, I was so full of shame and guilt. I didn't want to put my family through that. I went to counseling and I told the counselor that I want to kill myself. And Maybe you should put a trigger warning in front of, in front of this because it, it, it was a very um, traumatic time in my life. But that counselor said, hey, I'll help you make a plan. And I was really shocked. And he said things like, well, you know, if you don't do it right, you could injure yourself and end up staying alive but being very injured. And that's not good. Also, he was saying things like, you know, and once you get past a certain point, you have no control anymore. The nurses, the doctors have all the control. So you need to plan ahead. But I never did any of that. I never did plan. But I felt so, I don't know, I, I felt that, he, I thought he was going to say, don't do that, that's stupid. And he said, you know, that's, that's quite normal. I hear that quite a bit. And listen, if you're seriously going to do that, then do it right. And if not, let's keep talking. <laughs> you know, like, he was just so real to me and he treated me like a human being and that I mattered. And yes, he started right where I was at. He didn't ask me, didn't try to fix me. He didn't ask me to change. He just said, let's talk about that then, because that's what I wanted to talk about. And that, that made, meant that I began to trust him. And it, I, we started developing that rapport or that track record, you know, of talking back and forth and understanding each other. And then I was able to really open up and we got further into like a, really cool stuff, like visualizing myself as a child and, and hugging that child and and giving the child what the child wants, the things I didn't get because of my, you know, the, the multi-generational trauma that I ended up living with uh, 
when I left home at an early age. Why do you see harm reduction as an important tool when it comes to managing the opioid crisis? Yeah, there is really a, a crisis too. And, and there's a poison drug supply crisis too. So, so it's not only a crisis of how many people are actually injecting opioids, but how many people are dying, right? Um, I see harm reduction for Indigenous peoples is reducing the harms of colonialism. I see drug use and, and addictions and, and our high rates of mental health issues these are symptoms of colonization, I think. And we need to go back, you know, it's, it's easy to say, just say no and, you know, lock them all up and, and let's uh, lock the gates to our communities and put cameras up and, and we'll drive these dealers out. But it's our communities that are, are welcoming drugs back in. And, and those, it may seem like those um, ways of... Um, banishment and, and, and blocking and, uh, and criminalizing drug use as working at first because we count the numbers of people who have been banished and put in jail. But actually, is it really helping our families and, and our communities who end up welcoming more drugs back or just going to get them somewhere else? I don't see it that way because it's only looking at the symptom. It's like I, I have chronic headaches, so I'm taking an aspirin every day, but why am I getting chronic headaches? So we need to look further back and, and basically strengthen our, use our community strengths to, to respond to HIV. We have, our, our culture is strong and our people are strong and, and, and we can do this through, through love and helping people stay alive and, and get through it with support. And, and... In, well, if they're still using, if they can't quit or choose not to quit, in the meantime, let's, let's protect them, help protect them from HIV and other sexually transmitted or blood-borne infections. Why not? Because eventually people either, I mean, die or eventually they choose to get off eventually. There's very few 82-year-old op opioid users, but there's lots, I've met 82-year-olds who have done, and at some point they just go, ah, oh, you know, I need to do something. And that's the autonomy. They decided what their goals were. And that, that's part of harm reduction. It's not just giving people uh, clean equipment and safer equipment to keep using drugs. It's also to develop relationships and develop that trust so that at some point, when they're ready, they will ask Trevor, Trevor, you know, we've been friends for a while. I want to show you this and roll up their sleeve and show me this big, you know, sore on their arm from where they're injecting all the time, it got infected. And Trevor, I can't get I can't get any Johns anymore. I can't get any customers. And I can't feed my kid anymore. I'm really in trouble here. How can I what can I do about this? Because I, I can't get any clients. That's what they want, right? And helping them with that, they trust you a little more. And then you can say, well, you know, you don't that doesn't have to happen. You don't need to get lesions. There's ways to avoid that, right? And there's ways that da, 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 da. and eventually. Some people choose to get off, not all. Sometimes the success of harm reduction means the quality of life of that person went up and they were connected to community. Or other times it means we probably extended their life 10 years because they were part of this community and you know, they were welcomed in and, and nurtured. Let's talk, about, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the root. The root of 
resistance that we sometimes hear in our communities when it comes to implementing harm reduction policies um, and strategies. I've I've heard the phrase often, you know, oh, they should just quit cold turkey. I did it. You know, people who may have had an addiction to alcohol, I quit. I just quit cold turkey and, and I'm good. They should just quit, you know, or it's, it's, it's enabling. It's swapping out one drug for another. Um, what's the root of that resistance, do you think? In your experience, what have you come, come across on, on, on that when it comes to implementing harm reduction? One thing I think is many of our, you know, Indigenous people respect lived experience a lot. Someone, you've lived it, you've been through it, you know, right? So uh, many of our drug and alcohol program um, workers are the are the successful ones who made it through the twelve step program, of, which is most people think of it as abstinence. Although actually, it's not. You you, you don't have to be completely abstinent through the twelve step. You, there's there's people that you know that use in between, and they're not kicked out. But but generally, people think of it as abstinence and and believe that at the end of the day, my experience, my truth, is everybody's truth. But as you say, we're all different. So actually, we can all look at a box in the middle of the room. We're all looking at it from a different angle, and we're seeing something different. And it's what we're seeing is the truth. So when we share our truth around the circle, we realize how different each of our truth is. We're talking about the same thing, but we're all speaking the truth. And that's how it goes with harm reduction too, or, or abstinence, because the people that want to implement harm reduction are doing it out of love. The people that want to implement the, um, you know, the just say no, complete abstinence, uh, 100% quit, they're doing it out of love. None of them are doing it because they, oh, I hate people, you know, I hate human beings, I hate our community and family. That's not it. So, first of all, I think that's really important to recognize that we're on the same side. We're all on the same side here. We are responding to the effects of colonization. And, but if we take the rules of colonization and apply it, like the abstinence rules, because these alcohol came with rules from Europe, you know, just like some of the other diseases. They came with their rules that were already established. Um, so I think I really think that I, I would repeat that. And there's a there's a, um, a resource by Can called Indigenous Harm Reduction Equals Reducing the Harms of Colonialism that was made in partnership with the Interagency Coalition on AIDS and Development, which is ICAD, who's a very strong ally of Indigenous peoples. So this is, um, I encourage uh, any of your listeners to, to Google that, you know, Indigenous harm reduction equals reducing the harms of colonialism, and have a read through, because there's also case studies there of communities. You ask for real examples, and if you Google that, you'll see, I think, three examples from different First Nations communities who who have had successes with harm reduction, taking a very cultural approach, using our cultural strengths to respond, which could mean something as easy as, let's let's use the bingo hall. Let's have a bingo for harm, a bit harm reduction bingo. Because we have all these resources and ways that, of, of knowing and doing, right? Let's use it. <laughs> let's have some fun with it even, yeah. Make it make, it make sense for your community. What's your community doing? Yeah. And how, how, does it, how can it fit? How can it fit in, yeah. right? I've done so many talks, Sherry, like in different communities, and they all do it differently. One time I was in a bar, and the, the band, the country and western band, stopped, 
And I went up and did my talk about living with HIV, and then they continued on again. And that was their way. And it was really effective. People were picking, grabbing those condoms up like crazy, you know, like, and, and the pamphlets and stuff while they're having a beer. And that, that's just one idea, right? You were meeting them where they were at, literally. So when it comes to those, those examples, you know, when it comes to examples of, of, of communities that, that CAN has worked with, where they've implemented successful harm reduction strategies, you know, take us through, you know, like communities that are just starting out, that are just kind of taking their first steps towards harm reduction to communities that maybe are further on down that path. What do, what do they look like? What does harm reduction look like in communities that, that you've been involved with? Well, I'm not going to name any specific community, of course, but because uh, I don't want to, you know, put the finger, point a finger at anybody. But there were, you know, I worked with CAN on harm reduction projects nationally with different organizations and communities for two years. The first year, I worked in Toronto, Regina, and Vancouver. In each city, I worked with four different indigenous organizations, one with youth, one with women, um, one with two-spirit, and I cannot remember. The other one might have been people who use drugs, but I, I can't remember. And we were, we were um, assessing their community readiness. And that was really interesting. So some, and, and, and you know, there's, there's nine stages of community readiness. And the lowest one is no awareness. And if you, if you go beyond to the next step, beyond uh, no awareness, you come to uh, denial. Believe it or not, going into denial is, a, is, is one step uh, more aware than no awareness. So... So if a community is at a one, we do these assessments, and if a community was at a one, we do an intervention that is as simple as sitting down with a well-known elder, an elder who's you know does work in the community and knows the community rather well, and just having a coffee and talking casually around something, leading around to the conversation to uh, why do you think people are using drugs, are people here? Like... It's probably not because they, they want to be homeless and addicted and, and uh, struggling with life. That's probably not the reason why they tried drugs for the first time or kept doing drugs. So what was it then? What is it then? And, you know, we could call it, if we were doing research, we could call it social determinants of health. But we could also call it colonization, assimilation, residential school systems, and multi-generational trauma. People um, that I talk to, I mean, if you really dig down to it and get to know them, and, and this is my experience too, I started doing drugs to feel good. Not to, not to feel bad, not to go to jail or any of this other stuff or have financial problems. I did it because I wanted to feel like happy. I wanted to feel like a rush of uh, euphoria, like what a wonderful world. And I wasn't living like that. That was not my experience. I was living in, in shame and in emotional pain. And so when I did drugs, I felt good. And then I started to get addicted and then wasn't feeling so good anymore. And then it's like have, needing the drug to feel normal. And then, it, then, you know, people need help at that point. And not everybody is trusting enough. You know, indigenous people aren't all that trusting because of all, you know, our history and what's gone on. And it's not easy to gain that trust. That's part of harm reduction too, is walking with someone and getting to know where they're at, just like it is with communities, and starting where they're at. Not so far, not way, way advanced, pushing a community toward a needle exchange 
when they are still in denial or at very low levels of awareness. So that's why it's so important to find out where they're at. And for a community, it's a community readiness model that we use. And that was actually created by three Indigenous women from the Tri-Ethnic Centre for Prevention Research at Colorado State University. And it's, it's an old thing, and maybe a couple of bricks fell out of the wall, but that, that we are still using it up here, and it's a really good fit for our communities. But harm reduction has to be a, a discussion, because it's taken me 20 years for me to have this level of understanding of, of harm reduction and, and how you can do harm reduction. So there's high level, there's, there's organizations and communities that are at a very high level of readiness. They're already implementing um, harm reduction strategies. They have, you know, um, um, uh, needle, needle exchange programs going already. In a lot of communities where uh, people are coming in at first for counseling, drug counseling, you know, they're coming in the back door and sort of with their heads down like this so no one sees them. After a few months of, of therapy and and getting through the program, they're going through the front door with their head high. And they are telling everybody about how great this place is and the people that work and, and, and access services there. That's when you know that a community is getting there. And they're, you, they're doing stuff like learning the stories, you know, all that storytelling with all those teachings in it. They're making little booklets in their own languages, you know. They're using their culture and strengthening the, their own attachment and, and ownership of their culture to the response to harm reduction, to, to, to drug use and, and opiate use. And that's, in my experience, those communities that use their culture to respond are the ones that are seemingly doing really well in the response, you know? And people are coming in and, and but they still have, there's still issues. Nobody's perfect, but they're, you know, there's people are hopeful. There's there's sun at the end, you know, at the end of the tunnel, there's lots of light, you know, and it's starting to get on me. I'm starting to get this light on me, you know. I've seen experienced that, and that's a really good feeling. When CAN first started doing this work, we were sort of assessing their readiness and and we did we're not at the point yet where we're able to assist them with the strategy. So we'd assess their readiness and say, Good luck, here's some ideas, but uh, that's all we had. But now we're able to like have a, a sort of um, community of practice. We're sharing ideas with each other, right? Maybe you could adapt what happened over here, adapt it to your scenario. It won't be exact, but maybe some of these things will work over, or at least try it. If it doesn't, try something else. So at this point, we're, communities are helping each other. And CAN, you know, the N in CAN is networks. That's the key of what CAN does. Bringing communities and people together and, and sharing our strengths and our teachings and our knowledge to be stronger. You spoke earlier about the role of colonization in, in, in our wellness and, and some of the symptoms that many, many of us experience because of that, that trauma that, that we've gone through over the years. On the flip side, you know, I, I think about decolonization when you talk about communities having successfully merged their cultural ways with the wellness programs in their communities. Can you talk a little bit more about about that, about de the, the importance of decolonization in relation to harm reduction? Well, well you know, th this health system in Canada is not Indigenous. We didn't make it. In fact, the Europeans and others, settlers that did create it, 
didn't create it for us. They created it for them using their rules. Our health systems were not respected, and in fact, they were criminalized, and, and basically, residential schools did their best to, to make us forget our own systems of, of healing. So this whole power imbalance of our, our, our community members, when they go to a doctor, almost it's almost like when I talk to them, they're like, well, he told me to do this. And I'm like, well, you know, you're not the employee of the doctor. The doctor isn't your boss. You are the boss of your life. You are in charge and you make decisions. That doctor is giving you advice. So they may say you, need, you have to do this, but actually, in most cases, it's not an order. It's, it's they're giving you an option. Here's an option to access health. So this whole power imbalance, um, that's not ours. You know, we, we go into these institutions, whether it be a hospital or a school or a prison or a TB sanatorium, it's all the same to indigenous peoples. It hurts us, actually. There's institutional violence that happens to us. There's disrespect to our spirits, to our culture, to our very understandings of our own selves, our spirits. This spiritual abuse that we experience has really part of the reason why indigenous people don't trust any institution, including all this health and harm reduction, right? Because it's all part of the system, whether you're a, a community organization, a government worker, a doctor, it's all the system. Even our indigenous organizations, a lot of our community members go, that's just the system that continues to hurt me. And that's why I say this harm reduction is about reducing the harms of colonialism. I really think, I mean, even look at the medicines that we get. A lot of them come from nature, and we knew about them. And, and then bring us to residential school to make us forget, and then take our medicines and, and um, you know, patent them and, and charge, how much? $3,000 a pill or whatever, you know, that hurts us. And our medicine used to be free. Our medicines were free. All healing was free. That, you know, there's, there's so many disparities between the way indigenous people used to think of health and holistic health. Be as strong as you can. So if opportunistic diseases come along, you're strong enough, it bounces off. That's the idea of holism. Instead, the Western system is a disease model. It's not how healthy can we make you it's what's wrong with you it's it's like it's not about how healthy is this person let's help them make them healthier it's about what diseases or problems do they have let's identify that and address this disease here take this pill here but what about the symptoms for indigenous people the things that are causing this we used to have all these ways of the what's they're still there but a lot of us don't have access to the knowledge anymore about our, our natural medicines and even basic building blocks of health, Sherry, like nutrition. Many of our people, they don't understand it, and that's why our rates of diabetes are so high. And then they get diabetes, and they still don't understand it. And diabetes, like HIV, is a chronic, manageable disease. And yet, for indigenous populations, many people with diabetes don't have a handle on it. And I just, I just lost a cousin because of it. And I, I lose friends because of COVID and, and because of HIV. 
and and where we have higher rates of of contracting these diseases and also of ha not having great outcomes like we die from these diseases so it's decolonization you know we it's an interesting debate really about colonization we can only decolonize to a certain point i mean how do you decolonize the university right it's it's recognizing that it only works to a certain point and then it needs to be indigenized. Indigenize what exists so we can't change it and there is also like we can't say that everything that comes from Europe or from the settlers is bad because actually there's some really cool things that came along with from the Europeans and from others. I mean the science and Western research and all this. So there's this whole idea of two-eyed seeing, keeping our indigenous values and a lot of our teachings while at the same time using what's best out of the Western culture. Because even if there was no first contact 530-something years ago, we would have evolved in those 500-and-some years. We wouldn't be exactly the way we were. We were our, our cultures were evolving. Our values, I think, were pretty much... Indigenous values are indigenous values, and we can apply that to Christianity. We can apply that to the universities, to the, even, I would argue, to the churches. Interestingly, I've seen, like, in the Northwest Territories, they're doing the, you know, honoring the four directions, but also doing the, the Hail Mary or the, the cross thing on the chest, and combining them both for meaning of the four directions and for the cross as well. You know, it's that whole starting where, where people are at. That's where the community is at. Maybe that's where my community was at some point before we started really switching over to Christianity and then indigenizing that, you know, our first power, we had pickets saying devil worship, devil worship. This is, you know, 35 years ago and now all those same people are at the powwows because <laughs> that's where the heart is now, right? That's indigenization and decolonization because they're a little different, the two. Trevor, talk about some of the tools that CAN has developed to support harm reduction and, you know, uh, understanding harm reduction when it comes to colonization. I understand you've developed some good resources there. Mm -hmm. Well, the first one was back in 2011. We created the CAN Harm Reduction Implementation Guide. And we were, I think CAN was a little shy at the time to promote it too strongly because the government at the time was totally against harm reduction and would not allow any organizations to use that terminology. Although, all of the science was pointing toward harm reduction saves lives, right? And, and harm reduction is scientifically proven to be a very good response to uh, drug use and HIV. Um, fast forward uh, another, um, oh, you know, 10 years, we partnered, CAN partnered with the Interagency Coalition on AIDS and Development to create a resource called Indigenous Harm Reduction Equals Reducing the Harms of Colonialism. So if you start and Googling that, it'll come up and just click on that. And there's a, a great report and with some really beautiful, colorful indigenous artwork on it. But also included in there, if you're not the theoretical type and you want to see some real examples, there's three different case studies from indigenous communities of, of that provides really good examples of, of, of this concept of using the strengths of indigenous culture to respond to injection drug use and, and, and harm reduction. Thanks. And your your website is can.ca? Yeah, that's right. C-A-A-N dot C-A. I'd like to wrap up 
Trevor, and, and ask you, you know, a closing question, which I which I aim to ask all our guests here on Minobamadzuin. At the end of the day, in the line of work that, that you're involved in and, and the people that you work with and help, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? You know, it, it's when I hear people have been through such adversity and, and discrimination and they're willing to forgive because it's so healing to let go of blaming of um, not forgiving because we're holding that 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 in our heart and to forgive is, is very healing to an individual so do I forgive the person who gave me HIV yes I do I do forgive that person do I forgive the person who you know discriminated against me and fired me because I'm HIV positive yes yeah I do forgive that person it makes me feel like I'm healing when I do that you know and when I hear uh, other indigenous people um, who are living with HIV talk about the struggles that they've had and then talk about all of the good things and when they're giving thanks for all of the goodness in their lives that gives me hope and we're gonna have a lot of speakers like that because you know, the big international AIDS conference is coming to Montreal on July 29th till August 2nd. That's the international AIDS conference. They also call it AIDS 2022. And CAN is putting on our international indigenous pre-conference on HIV and AIDS for two and a half days on July 26th till uh, the 28th. Yeah. So we're going to have lots from all over the world, indigenous people living with HIV AIDS. We're going to have government people from the HIV programs in Mexico, United States, and Canada, people from the United Nations, from UNAIDS, from the International Labor Organization, and the Stop TB Partnership. It's going to be really exciting. We've invited the Minister of Health from Canada, and we've heard some whispers that the Minister of Health from Mexico might even come. So we've got some momentum here. That gives me hope too, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> and a little plug for your yeah. for your event coming up. Exactly. Absolutely. And you better it come It sounds like an amazing show. event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be Well, good. thank that'll you. Be thank you so much, Trevor Stratton, for, for spending some time with us on Minoba Mods win today. Thanks, Sherry, and good luck with the show. The website, once again, for Trevor's organization is can.ca. That's C-A-A-N dot C-A. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked our podcast, please rate it and review don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search for us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ThunderbirdPF. Anishik, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff.